Good afternoon. Our next case is State versus Woolard, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. I'm Catherine Heathcock from the Attorney General's Office on behalf of the state. Now, I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. In this case, the trial court erred in granting defendants' motion to suppress because there was ample probable cause to arrest the defendant for DWI. Just by procedural history, in this case, the district court entered its pretrial indication. On appeal, the Superior Court considered the pretrial indication, reviewed the facts de novo, and entered its own findings affirming the pretrial indication. Then the district court entered the final order of suppression. So the Superior Court's order affirming the pretrial indication controls the factual issues in this case under 2038.7, since the Superior Court did make those um, differing, differing findings from those of the district court. The Superior Court's findings of fact were incorporated by law into the district court's order affirming the pretrial indication and the final order of suppression. In this case, there was ample probable cause to arrest the defendant for driving while impaired. Probable cause requires only a probability of criminal activity, and it's a totality of the circumstances test. So we're looking at what the officer, based on his training and experience, would believe, and whether he or she would think that a crime has been committed. And we have that in this case. We have the erratic driving, where the defendant crossed the center line six to seven times and was running off the road to the right and kicking up dust. We have the odor of alcohol inside the cab of the vehicle and on the defendant's breath. Red and glassy eyes. We have flushed face and cheeks. The defendant admitted to consuming a couple of beers earlier. And then the Superior Court also found that there were two positive samples on the portable breath test. And then the defendant manifested all six clues on the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. The defendant argues in his brief that there may have been some issues with the portable breath test or the administration of the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. And those would make great cross-examination questions. That's a great jury argument, but it shouldn't defeat a motion to suppress in this case. Even if the, the portable breath test and the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, the evidence of those should have been excluded, there's ample other evidence of probable cause here. Um, the takeaway should be, do we want the highway patrol and law enforcement across the state to think that this is not enough to stop someone and th that they have to let a defendant go when they're manifesting all of these indicators of impairment? When the trooper sees this erratic driving, the odor of alcohol in the cab and on the breath, red and glassy eyes, flushed face and cheeks, the admission to consuming beers, the two positive samples on the portable breath test, and the clues on the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. That's plenty of probable cause. And as this court found in Atkins versus Moy, the fact that a motorist has been drinking when considered in connection with faulty driving or other conduct indicating an impairment of physical or mental faculties is sufficient prima facie to show a violation of 2138. And here we have that. We have the bad driving. We have the admission of drinking. Prima facie, probable cause. And the trial court erred in granting the motion to suppress. Do we, do we look at the circumstances um, as the trial court appeared to do at the time of the trial court? Or are we looking at the circumstances as they appeared to the officer at the time of the arrest? 
Justice Nibby, we're looking at the circumstances through the eyes of the officer and what he believed at the time of the stop and the arrest. The totality of the circumstances based on his training and experience, um, the, the bad driving here, the weaving across the road, the red and glassy eyes, all the physical indicators, the um, field sobriety testing that he performed poorly on. We're looking at this as a big picture for probable cause. And the defendant may be able to come back later and explain everything. There may be a justification for all of these. But at the time, are we saying that Trooper, that Captain Sawyer of the Highway Patrol should have arrested this defendant? And he did. It would be unsafe to tell law enforcement across the state that they have to let this defendant go when he appears to be this impaired based on Captain Sawyer's training and experience. It appears that we dealt with similar issues in a recent case called Parisi. Uh, yes, Your Honor. Would you compare this, the facts of this case to those that we found in Parisi? Yes, Your Honor. Parisi is right on point. In Parisi, this court found probable cause where there was an odor of alcohol, an admission of drinking, and multiple indicators on the field sobriety test indicating impairment. We have all of those here, plus more. It's right on point with Parisi and even stronger than the facts that were presented in that case. And I did want to briefly touch on the defendant's invitation for this court to revisit the granting of cert. Under the North Carolina Constitution, Article 4, Section 12, this court not only has the authority, but the responsibility to issue remedial writs necessary to give general supervisory and control over the proceeding of other courts. So regardless of the rules of appellate procedure and the general rules of practice for the superior courts, this court always has the jurisdiction under the Constitution to issue um, remedial writs. And I did want to mention the defendant brought up in his brief that the state cited an unpublished opinion in its brief. The state apologizes for that. That was a stylistic oversight. It will not happen again. And um, there are plenty of other cases on point besides that unpublished case. And if there are no further questions, I will reserve my remaining time for rebuttal. I just I do want to just follow up on your point that um, this court has the authority to issue remedial writs. And, and I, I guess my question is, is it your position that there's something extraordinary about this case or the legal principles involved in this case that would justify our exercise of that authority? Yes, Your Honor. This case is extraordinary because the state is stuck in this interlocutory no man's land, for lack of a better word. Um, the, the case has not been called yet for trial, so there's nothing for the state to appeal. But the state also has an ethical obligation not to move forward with evidence that has been suppressed. So the state can't appeal and the state can't move forward unless the suppressed evidence is reversed. So there is no way for the state to appeal. The defendant cites in his brief some statutory provisions that, that could apply, but they all apply to judgments or dismissals, and we don't have that in this case. There's been a final order of suppression, but no dismissal by the district court. So there's basically no way, no avenue for the state to appeal this other than through the extraordinary writ of cert. Thank you. Just to follow up on that, because I had a similar thought just procedurally. I mean, we, there are circumstances where we um, grant, uh, we allow discretionary review and then later dismiss for discretionary review and providently allowed. But the thing that's odd about certiorari is it is one of these uh, remedial writs. So we, this court issued the writ. And I guess my question to you is, 
can we take it back? Is this like uh, a petition for discretionary review where we can simply say maybe we shouldn't have done it? Or has the writ conferred appellate jurisdiction and now the sole question is, you know, what, how do we resolve the case? What, how does that work? Do you, do you have any case law that I would submit that um, the, the writ did confer jurisdiction, but in any event, the, um, the Constitution confers jurisdiction. Uh, by the wording itself, the, the Supreme Court shall have jurisdiction to review under the Constitution. So there's that. And then petitions for discretionary review aren't necessarily jurisdictional. Um, that's a, that could be a different issue than, than what we have here, where jurisdiction is conferred automatically by the Constitution and by issuance of the writ itself. If there are no further questions, I will save my remaining time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. If it pleases the court, Chief Justice Newby and Associate Justices, good afternoon. I'm Les Robinson from Pitt County. I have the privilege of representing Mr. Woolard and the honor to appear before this court. The first issue, as a couple of justices have already commented on, is whether or not this case is properly before this court. I think it's important to go back and revisit the statutes that talk about the state's right to appeal and drive on period cases. In 2006, there was a major renovation of the statutes, and now those statutes gave the state the right to appeal in certain circumstances. So in a DWI case, if there's a motion that's heard, the court, the district court, does not enter a final order. It enters a preliminary order. The state has a right to appeal given to it by statute because the common law of the statutes, excuse me, the state didn't have a right to appeal. So in this case, the state appealed. And the statute again says the state shall hear the matter anew as de novo. And then if it finds that it was correct, send the case back down or remand it back down for the final entry of an order. The final entry of the order is not the facts in the Superior Court, but the facts found by the District Court. So I disagree with counsel that you should be looking at the Superior Court order. You should not. You should be looking at the facts found by the District Court because it entered its final order. So it's the position of Mr. Woolard that once the final order was entered, that foreclosed any right of the state to appeal or to petition. We do know from the Fowler and Palmer cases that the state didn't have a right to appeal the ruling of the Superior Court, but they did have a right to file a petition. For whatever reasons, the state chose not to do so. The Superior Court was very specific. It said the district court shall enter its final order on the next setting, which I believe was March 21st, 2021. For whatever reason, the district court didn't do so. The state continued the matter. A few days thereafter, the district court entered its final order. It's the position of Mr. Woolard that that foreclosed the state's right to petition. At that point, there's a final order. So if we go and look at the statute. So what about your, your friend for the state argues that the, Const, the North Carolina Constitution authorizes this court to issue remedial writs to review the actions of the lower courts whenever we want. So we should, of course, you know, be cautious about using that power, but that it's a constitutional power that this court has, and therefore it doesn't really matter what anything else says. It, we issue a writ, and the Constitution allows us to do it. So what's your response to that? Justice Dees, Article 4, Section 12, 
has provision. It also says the procedure will be prescribed by the General Assembly. So if we go in and look at that, look at Rule 19. Rule 19 says the writ on a final order would be from district court to the superior court. They didn't utilize Rule 19. If we look at Rule 21 that gives the state the right to file a writ, it says when the right to appeal has been lost by action or inaction, when the right existed, or when there is an interlocutory order, or finally the MAR, which is not MAR and there's not a right to appeal, so the question is, is the final order ended by the district court interlocutory? I contend it's not. So Rule 19 indicates it should have been to the Superior Court. Rule 21 forecloses, and I know there, Madam uh, Opposing Counsel didn't argue, but there is Rule 2, and the question may arise when you discuss this matter is, can we use Rule 2 of the appellate procedures to confer jurisdiction and waive all these rules? Uh, Bailey versus North Carolina, I think it's a 2000 case this court considered where the Attorney General was trying to overturn the awarding of attorney's fees. This court said you cannot use Rule 2 to suspend the rules and confer jurisdiction on the court. So it's my position the rules 19 and 21 govern the procedure for the state to file the writ of certiorari. I do want to correct one thing. The state indicates that when it filed its writ in the Court of Appeals, it filed a writ to review the district court order. It did not. The writ filed in the Court of Appeals was a writ to review the Superior Court order. So apparently the state wanted to change horses to get a better mount and filed the writ to review the district court order. And I think what's problematic and what I think supports my argument is we're in this courtroom with no transcript and no record on appeal. There's no record, no rule that provides how to do the record on appeal in this case. So I've, I've been here practicing 35 years. I've never seen an appeal without a transcript and record on appeal. This may be the first one. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not proper, but I contend that that's just more evidence of the fact that the writ in this case is improper. And as to your question to opposing counsel, can this court now overturn its earlier decision? Sure it can. It can conclude that the writ was improvidently granted, which is what I argued in my brief. My question about that, though, is that, uh, you know, there seems to be some uh, at least distinction logically between granting discretionary review and issuing a writ of certiorari because the, the idea with the writ is there's no jurisdiction and then we do this extraordinary thing and we create the jurisdiction. And so to then say, you know what, we, we take it back. We don't have jurisdiction anymore seems odd in a way that of course it wouldn't to say we'll allow discretionary review this choice we have in our discretion and then later say, oh, you know, we we shouldn't have done that, and so we won't review it. But in your view, it's the same. If we decide we want to take it back, we can just take it back. Yes, sir, and I think there have been cases. I, I'm sorry, I can't cite one. I'll certainly provide some to the court if the court requests afterwards, but I've seen cases where the court has ruled that the review was granted improvidently, and that's where I obtained the word from. But I believe the court does have that power. And again, when we look at the Rule 19 and look at Rule 21, those are the procedural rules to exercise the writ, and, and this case doesn't fit in Rule 21 and Rule 19 would be the Superior Court. And also, the State versus Loftus case, and I'm thinking this is kind of like, almost like an issue of first impression, the State versus Loftus in the Court of Appeals. In that case, there was a district court ruling in favor of the defendant. The State appealed, the Superior Court ruled, the Superior Court sent it back down, and then the State was trying to file a petition, but for whatever reason was, was delinquent in it, and the district court entered its final order. The Loftus court said at that point, the State's remedy was to file a dismissal. That's what they had to do. And there was actually a, a rule of ethics opinion on, I think it's 2009 FEO 15, that said at that point the state was obligated 
to file a dismissal. And so we have a final order here. So again, I think that supports the position. I'll acknowledge to this court, this panel, that this looks like, I've never seen this issue arise before, the way this has been handled. And that's why I think we don't have a record on appeal and why we don't have a transcript. Just one more question about um, this. The state, as I understand the contention here, um, is saying that we should exercise our general supervisory authority because otherwise the state would have no um, avenue of appeal. Your Honor, if that's the state's position, which I, it appears to be, I disagree. First, they had the remedy to appeal the district court's decision. They did that. They had a right at that point to petition the Court of Appeals to review the Superior Court if they did so timely. I, I don't know why the Court of Appeals denied it, but I would say it was not timely because they filed their writ after the district court entered its final order, and the Loftus case seems to foreclose the writ at that moment. But as I understand um, the petition for writ of certiorari, if you've lost your right to appeal based because you missed a time deadline, that's sort of exactly when we can step in um, if we think that justice merits it. Well, I would say under Rule 21, it says if you've lost your if you've lost your right to appeal through inaction, there's no right to appeal in this case. The second part of Rule 21 says where there's an interlocutory order. So I contend that the order in this case entered by the district court was the final order. Therefore, it's not interlocutory. It concluded at that point the case is concluded because the state cannot proceed forward because there's no evidence to proceed forward. And as I indicated in the ethical rule, you're obligated to dismiss the case. Can I answer any further questions on the jurisdictional issue? I'll proceed to the second issue, and that's whether or not there was probable cause uh, in this case. The first thing I'll point is two different judges, a district court judge and a superior court judge, both residents of that district with a combined experience of over 70 years, heard the evidence included that there was not probable cause. I contend this court should be bound by the facts found by the district court. As I indicated moments ago, that is because the final order that's binding in this case is the final order of the district court that its findings in the preliminary is now a final order. So we should go to the district court findings of fact that were set forth in preliminary indication. And so what we have in this case, I call this the B case. I'm not trying to be funny about it, but it involves swatting bees. And the first thing is this. Uh, it's on a Saturday afternoon, mid-afternoon, in a rural part of eastern North Carolina. Uh, the trooper is traveling down what we call railroad bed road. This old railroad bed that's now become a road. It's as long as you can see, it's pretty straight, but it's got some waves in it. He pulls out, he sees a truck pull onto the roadway some distance ahead. He catches up to the vehicle. In the interim, there's no bad driving, perfectly fine. As he gets behind the vehicle, the vehicle begins to cross over the center line multiple times and, in fact, run off the road. Um, there's a fact cited by the uh, opposing counsel that he kicked up dust. That was found by the Superior Court, not by the District Court. So obviously he pulls this vehicle over. The vehicle immediately pulls over. It pulls over in a normal fashion. No problems, prompt response to blue lights. He walks up to the car, and obviously most troopers are looking in the interior of the car for protection purposes. He sees no contraband. He sees no open containers. He sees nothing that concerns him. It turns out he recognizes this gentleman. They are childhood friends that had gone to school together. And he basically discusses the driving, and he says, I was trying to shoe bees, shoe bees out of the car. Well, I contend that both the district court and the superior court accepted that explanation. So it's not bad driving. And I'll point out, as I did in my brief, there are five B families. I got educated a little bit. Five B families with 500, excuse me, 458 different kinds of bees. The main one is the mining bee that, that comes out primarily in March, April, and May. This was in, in April. 
And ironically, just down the road is a farm called Teresia Farms. 250 acres of flowers. They sell commercial flowers. They also have 1,250 acres for farming. So is that an unreasonable explanation? I, I think both the district court and the Superior Court found that it was. Now, in the Overrocker case, the state argued. Can I ask a question? Yes, sir. Clarification there, so that, but wouldn't the question for that part of the case be what does the officer, what would a reasonable officer believe at the time that you see the vehicle swerving out the road there? Because that isn't the swerving there just to initiate the stop. Yes. And sir. there's all this other evidence of, okay, now I think I see the intoxicated person. So or is what you're saying that the court also considered the swerving as one of the factors and that should have said, actually, that was these, so that we shouldn't consider that, but we can look at the other one. I mean, in other words, I'm trying to understand why, if the court thought there really were bees flying around in the truck, that that matters at all for the probable cause. Well, I think, of course, it's the trial court's obligation to hear the evidence, weigh the evidence, and assess the credibility, not this court. And that's what the court said in Overrocker. The state was trying to argue that the accident was some faulty driving in that case because the gentleman had backed over a pink motorcycle. And the trial court had concluded that was not a, an issue at all. And in fact, they tried to argue it was, and the court said it's not our job to reevaluate the evidence. The standard is objective, not subjective. It's not what this officer believes, but objectively what we see. And so I think the trial court, both district and superior court, concluded that that was some credibility to it, some truthfulness to it, because the trooper didn't see anything that contradicted it. The female passenger in the vehicle didn't answer any questions that contradicted it. But keep in mind, when he first went to the window, based on the findings of fact, there was nothing unusual at all, including any odors of alcohol. He didn't say anything about the red eyes. He didn't say anything about the face. He engaged in a conversation that was initiated by my client. He recognized him and basically engaged him in conversation, said, you moved to Pantigo, and they engaged in a conversation. There was nothing unusual. In fact, the trial court found that that conversation, his physical and mental functions appeared to be normal. There's nothing unusual about the conversation. Then he detected the odor of alcohol and asked him, have you been consuming alcohol? He admitted I had a couple. Didn't say when, didn't say where, didn't say the time period, didn't say the type of alcohol. He just said, I consumed some. There were no further questions. So the, the trooper goes back to his car, runs his driver's license registration. Again, how did he produce his driver's license registration? Perfectly fine. Why is that important? The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has developed a series of cues or clues that they look for, they should be looking for. And one of those is how you produce your driver's license, how you produce your registration, how you pull over once the lights are initiated, what you see in the car. Didn't see anything. You came back, driver's license, registration, everything's fine. He says, would you mind getting out of the car and doing a PBT for me? Plenty of breath test. Now, at that point, the district court concluded that it was not done properly and excluded it and was very specific about why. The statute, GS 2016.3, says it must be in an approved device used in an approved manner. Then it incorporates regulations. Regulations say one of the requirements is, in fact, that the officer examine or make a determination that the driver has nothing in his mouth. The court and district court concluded he didn't make that examination, and for that reason, he excluded the PBT. So there's no positive result at all in that case. So then keep in mind, while he's doing that, he didn't notice anything unusual about his balance, about his coordination, about the way he got the vehicle. Again, these are clues or clues that NHTSA, as I call it, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, has in fact prescribed that you look for. He walks back with their problem. NHTSA says this, and, and I want to get into a little bit of details on that. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in the late 70s and early 80s conducted a, an extensive scientific study of the various balance and coordinating tests and did it over a course of a number of years. And after looking at it in a scientific way, 
they concluded that there were only three tests that were in indicators of impairment if the tests were performed in a very specific and standardized manner. Those three tests were the horizontal gaze nystagmus, or the pin test, as we say, the walk and turn test, and then the one leg stand. And they prescribed that the officer should perform all three when he or she can do so safely, and then followed up with a PBT. Why? Because you don't want confirmation bias, according to the NHTSA studies. Confirmation bias means if you see the PBT, and the officers aren't supposed to use the number, but practicality or they probably look at it and, and use it to formulate their opinions. So you use that afterwards. Why? To confirm or disconfirm what you're seeing is caused by alcohol or is it some other medical issue or diabetic issue or something of, of drug nature. So the officer didn't follow the procedure. <clears throat> Second, the HGN test. The court and district court specifically found that test was not done properly. Primarily the test, the officer testified that they go from out, back, out back was only two seconds. That's not correct according to NHTSA. When we argued the case, the manual that was available, instructor manual and student manual was 2018. In February of this year, NHTSA released its 2023 manual. It's identical in, sense, in terms of how this test is done, the number of tests are supposed to be done, and then the PBT and the order. It's all the same standards. They're online, if you look at them, they clearly say this test has gotta be done in a very specific manner. The officer also did not indicate it when he did the second part, he's supposed to hold it out for a number of seconds. He did not do that properly. The NHTSA manuals, both in 18 and in 23, specifically say these tests are not validation if you don't do it in the prescribed manner. In fact, the, the instructor manual indicates to the students you must be very religious to do these things appropriately, otherwise validation is not according. So that's why I objected to it but the court said it goes to the weight. The other two tests were not done. Walk and turn was not done. The one leg standing test was not done. They're the only two vehicles on this road in the remote area of Beaufort County. There was no explanation for why those two other tests were not done. Then if we get to the odor, appellate case law said the odor is not in indicative of impairment. It's, if you've consumed something, sure. He admits to consuming, but doesn't say how much, where, when, or how, over what period of time. Then there's this classic one. Red glassy eyes. In 1997, Jack, I think it's Stuster, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, he was one of the original ones who did the scientific validation studies. He took that cue or clue out of the 24 cues. He says it was not an objective finding of impairment because many people had red and glassy eyes for a number of reasons, including those who work outdoors. Ironically, Mr. Woolard worked on a ferry and was on his way to work. So that clue or cue was taken out. And then he talked about the red and, and the flushed face. I, in fact, questioned the trooper in court because his face was red and flushed. And the district court made that finding that, you know, he couldn't correlate that to alcohol. He couldn't correlate the eyes and he, could, he did not correlate the, um, the, the face. Some people have ready complexion. Some people work outside, their face becomes red. And that's why Jack Stuster, as I'm saying his name correctly, in 1997 took that clue out of the manual as clues or objective clues. So in this case, you had a gentleman who had some bad driving, but then explained it. I think it was a credible explanation. I think both courts found it to be a credible explanation. And then he only did one of three tests. He should have done three. There was no reason not to do three. And the one he did, he didn't do properly. The PBT was not done properly. His speech was unremarkable. His balance of coordination was unremarkable. The way he walked about, moved about were unremarkable. The trooper never formed an opinion, never gave the court an opinion. The court specifically found that. So the state, and I believe uh, one of the justices pointed out, in this case, I believe Justice Newby, I think you pointed out by Parisi, 
and uh, asked for the facts of that case. That case is not on point, even though the state says it is. Parisi case and the facts are important because when you look at PC cases, what drives these cases in the right and to the right conclusion is what are the facts. You can't take one or two factors out of, a, out of an opinion and cite it for a proposition that's probable cause. You gotta look at the totality of circumstances. That's what the district court's gotta do. The Superior Court's gotta do it. So Parisi, it's a checkpoint, it's late at night. As they come up, there's an argument inside the vehicle. The defendant's eyes are watery and glassy. They're, he says, I have three beers. He did six out of six on HGN. He also had four miscues on the walk and turn and on the one leg stand test, he swayed and used his arms for balance. So all three tests were administered. There was no issue as to whether or not those tests were administered properly. And so um, that case is not like this case. There were not three tests performed. The, the test, the one test that was performed was questioned and admitted to as not being done in accordance with NHTSA. And then the PBT was not done. So I, I contend that the Parisi case is not on point. If you look at the Townsend case that the, that the state cited, again, that's a checkpoint. It's an odorous red bloodshot eyes, two positive PBTs, no challenge to the PBTs. Three out of six on HGN, two on the walk and turn, and one clue on the one leg stand. Again, very materially different than this case. The, the uh, state also cited, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm gonna butcher this name, Pactiqual, and, and that again is a case where there's some really bad driving that was not explained. Driving up over curves and onto the median, uh, stopping out in the intersection, slurred speech, denied drinking four out of six, and admitted to taking Xanax and smoking marijuana, and there was an odor of marijuana and odor of alcohol found. So that case is clearly distinguishable. Um, I just don't think any case the state cited is on point with this case, and again, uh, the rule is this court should give great deference to the trial courts because they're the ones who actually see and hear the witnesses and they can believe some of what the witness says, none of what they said or, or all of it. But the trial court's the one who saw the witness testify and two different judges, again, emphasizing with over 70 years of experience uh, practicing law, they both looked at it and reached the same conclusion that there was no probable cause in this case. And I would contend that there's no probable cause. And in fact, the state didn't contest any of the findings of fact. And one of the findings of fact is that the defendant was, was in control of his physical and mental faculties. So if, if this were the trial court, I would say the issue is whether or not objectively there was probable cause to believe that Mr. Woolard had drank enough alcohol, whether it was a spoonful or a quart, to cause him to lose the normal control of his physical or his mental faculties, or both to such an extent there was appreciable impairment. That's the issue in the case. And in this case, we can focus on this driving, but then you're starting to try and substitute your evaluation of the evidence for that of the trial court, and I think that's impermissible for this court to do. Because it's driving before the shooing of the bees, the way he responded to the blue lights promptly in a normal fashion and pulled over even though there were big canals and shoulders on the side with no problems, was fine. He spoke fine. He had a conversation that was perfectly normal. He had nothing in the car. He got out of his truck and walked back to a location. Fine, balance and coordination were fine. He stood there and did a test that was not administered properly. Nothing wrong with his balance and coordination. He did a second test that was not done properly. Nothing about his balance and coordination. The other two tests that should be done were not done. He didn't make any admissions about I'm impaired, I, 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 I shouldn't be driving, nothing of that nature. So, and he gave an explanation that I believe is reasonable. When you look at, you know, the bees, you can't make that up. 
And then on top of that, you've got a, a farm right down the road that's 250 acres of flowers. What do bees do? They pollinate. So, so this is at the, uh, this was a motion saying that there was no probable cause. This isn't the merits. Yeah, yes, sir. That, that's this, correct, Your Honor. This is not more likely than not. I mean, this is not beyond a reasonable doubt at this point. No, sir. The standard it's, preponderance of the evidence, Chief Justice Newby. And, and, you're, and you're looking at uh, the facts as known to, to the reasonable law enforcement officer under all the circumstances. Yes, sir. In an objective manner. He, he, he may or may not accept the explanation that there were uh, there was a bee. Uh, there's no indication that he gave weight to that, correct? Yes, sir. And, and in fact, there was no citation issue for the driving. The, he the did, driving in fact, He did, in fact, uh, observe this car, this truck, uh, go over the center line and go off the road. Correct? Yes, sir. That's correct. And he smelled alcohol. That's correct, Your Honor. And uh, the uh, trial court found that he did not uh, pass the horizontal gaze test. The, the district court made a specific finding of fact that first described how he did the test, which was not in accordance with NHTSA. And then the district court did not sustain my objection. They overruled it, but the district court said it goes to the weight that the court gave to it instead of, instead of its admissibility. I disagree but it, but, with that. But at this stage, we're to look at it as the officer understood the facts and circumstances. A reasonable officer would have understood the facts and circumstances. Objectively, correct? yes, sir, with, with so, explanations. So he, he would have understood that there was the failure of this one test, and he would have arguably uh, understood that uh, there was a failure with regard to the uh, breathalyzer that was administered. Well, Your Honor, I, I think when we start to say what the officer understood, we're starting to move from the objective standard to a subjective, what's in his mind, and that's not permissible. Well, the standard's it's, it's objective, a, it's not subjective. an objective officer who is trying to assess the circumstances. He has an admission that someone was drinking alcohol. Yes, sir. Uh, and he's seen erratic driving. Uh, why does our case law, such as Atkins, not say that that in and of itself is sufficient for a, quote, prima facie showing. Yeah, the Atkins case was a civil case where the, the driver that was the appealing party was the one who ran into the rear of another vehicle. And I believe the court gave an instruction on impairment, and I think in that case they said that was not proper. But that driver ran into the rear of another vehicle without explanation. The vehicle was in the middle of the roadway, excuse me, in the lane with no obstructions or anything. And so I, I think when you look at the, the fault of the driving, I think objectively the trial court has to hear, hear here's evidence of, okay, is there an explanation for this driving? Uh, if it's not, in other words, most of the, the, the at-fault cases where there's bad driving, the driving is unexplained. It's on a clear, bright day with no explanation. In this case, the driver was very specific about his driving. He said, I was trying to shoot bees out of the car. It certainly makes it a good stop because at that moment, the officer doesn't know why the driving is that way. But once he encounters the driver and the driver offers an explanation and says, my driving was this way because of this. And, and the question is, is the driving objectively because of the impairment or is it because of the bees? Well, and so, that's, that's a matter for the trial court on the merits when that case is actually heard. There's no doubt that that defense will be raised in the trial court. Should they find it credible, will find 
that there's uh, not driving while impaired beyond a reasonable doubt. But at this stage, uh, the officer can either accept or reject that explanation from the driver, correct? Again, Judge, I think that's trying to put subjectively, the officer subjectively making decisions. And again, it's the trial court listening to the facts and the trial court making discernments about the facts. Because what if an officer says a fact that's shown not to be true? Or what if he's shown a fact that's not accurate? It may not be necessarily not true, but not accurate about the description. Does the trial court completely disregard that? They say, because, because the officer says that, I've got to accept it as true? I, I think not. I think the trial court's decision on the motion to suppress for probable cause is, number one, it's subjective. It's got to be objective. I'm listening to the evidence. I'm objectively saying what he's saying is objectively credible. And number two, whether or not it's true. And I think the, the, the court, in both cases, accepted the explanation given by the driver because there was no evidence to contradict it. And if you look at the timing of it, the springtime, uh, the bees that I've shown through the brief, brief, and you've got a flower uh, farm right down the road, it's a reasonable explanation that was not contradicted. It's not like he got the female out and she said, he wasn't shooting bees, he was just doing something else. So there's no contradiction of that. Certainly it's a good stop, but does it show impairment objectively if it's true? And, and I say it's the trial court's function to decide what's true or what's not true. It's not this court's function is, is again, we're starting to get into let's reassess the evaluation of this evidence. The court's not supposed to do that. The question is, the court looks, is there evidence to support the finding of the fact? Well, here we don't have a transcript, so the court can't perform that function. Second, if the findings of fact, do they support the conclusions of all? The court found that the driving as a fact was explained by the bees, was not contradicted. Can, can you show me where the yes, court sir, Your made that finding? If, if you look in, it's attached to my brief, Your Honor, if you look, I'm looking at the district court order because that's what I contend should govern the court. And Your Honor, it's appendix number one. I see finding of fact number 20. Yes, sir, it'd be number 20, Your Honor, where he says defendant replied there were bees in the interior of the cab and he was trying to swat or shoo the bees out of the cab. Lieutenant Sawyer did not discover anything that contradicted defendant's statements. That, that's the finding of fact I'm referring to, Your Honor. But there's no finding that the court finds, in fact, that there were bees in the cab. I, I take that to read the court's implicit finding in that, Your Honor. I mean, did they say they were, in fact, bees in the car? Because, again, it's a credibility issue, but didn't find otherwise. Your Honor, I see that my time is up. I'm happy to answer any questions if this court will extend my time. Thank you, counsel. Chief well, Justice, maybe thank you. Associate Justice, likewise, thank you for the opportunity to come here and argue today. Good afternoon. Just a few points in rebuttal that I wanted to make. First of all, the state does contend that the Superior Court's findings of fact do control this case. Looking at General Statute 20-38.7, 
It says that the state may appeal to Superior Court any district court preliminary indication granting a motion to suppress. If there is a dispute about the findings of fact, the Superior Court shall not be bound by the findings of the district court, but shall determine the matter de novo. The Superior Court did that here, made its own findings of fact, and when the matter was remanded back to the district court, um, the state contends that those findings of fact by the Superior Court were by law incorporated into the final order granting the defendant's motion to suppress. The findings of fact of the district court and the Superior Court are, are basically the same. There are a few differences. Uh, the Superior Court does um, approve the horizontal gaze and the stagmas test and does find that there are two um, positive indicators on the portable breath test. They're mostly the same other than those two, um, two field sobriety test findings, but the state does contend that those factors were incorporated into the final order of suppression. As to this still being interlocutory, the state contends that um, once it was remanded back to the district court, there there's been no disposition. This matter is still on the docket. It hasn't been called, and only the state can call the case, not the district court. It's still pending. Um, there's no final disposition, and it is interlocutory. There is no right to appeal from an interlocutory decision, which is why we're here today under this extraordinary writ that has been granted. The defendant cites to Rule 19, but he doesn't say that that's Rule 19 of the General Courts of Justice for Superior Court. So yes, that rule does say that the state can appeal to Superior Court, but it doesn't say that that's the only method by which the state can contest a final order of suppression. I did want to go through the probable cause again. The defendant made some great jury arguments here today some great cross-examination points that he brought up. But again, we're looking at probable cause. It, the existence of probable cause depends upon whether at that moment, the facts and circumstances within the officer's knowledge and of which he had a reasonable, trustworthy information were sufficient to warrant a prudent man in believing that the suspect had committed or was committing an offense. Looking at the big picture here, we definitely have that with what Captain Sawyer observed. The erratic driving, the odor of alcohol, which is mentioned in District Court Order Finding Number 26 and Superior Court Order Finding 28. The red and glassy eyes, which is District Court Order 27, Superior Court Order Finding 29. The flushed face and cheeks, which is District Court Order Finding 27 and Superior Court Order 29. The defendant admitted consuming a couple of beers earlier which is District Court Order Finding 30 and Superior Court Order Number 33. The two positive samples on the portable breath test, which is Superior Court Order Findings 37 to 38, and then the six of six clues on the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, which is in District Court Findings 36 to 37 and Superior Court Order Number 40. The defendant urges this court not to reassess the evidence, but that is exactly what, what he has done as well in this case. We're looking at the totality of the circumstances here, all of these factors, and what the officer believed at the time he made this stop and arrest. And here, based on all of these factors and the officer's objective belief that a crime was underfoot, there was probable cause in this case, similar to Atkins versus Moy and Parisi. The state prays that this court reverse the grant of the defendant's motion to suppress 
and send the message to law enforcement officers that they do not have to let a defendant drive away when they have these physical indicators like we have in this case. And if there are no further questions, I will rest on my brief. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to everyone.